right, well, we are starting the book of Nehemiah tonight, so if you want to make your way there, we are moving from Ezra and, then, and Nehemiah, and in the Greek translation of the, the Bible, the Septuagint, they put Ezra and Nehemiah together, um, but obviously in our English translation, they're separate, um, separate books there, and so um, again, um, hopefully you... Uh, um, can see um, and follow along with us there in Nehemiah chapter 1. And that's where we're going to begin. So let's go before the Lord and we uh, will pray and then we'll pick it up in chapter 1. Father, we just come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for this time that we get to uh, start this uh, new book, Lord. It's always great and exciting to start a new book. And Lord, we pray that... Um, you would just bless this time as we just look into the life of Nehemiah, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, you know, most people, if you've been around for a while, I mean, right, you have studied through at least part of the book of Nehemiah, it's a pretty common book to, um, to at least, if you've been around church, to have heard a few verses, maybe you've not had it taught through verse by verse, maybe you have. Um, it's a, it's a, a book that's referred to a lot because it talks about the great work of God, uh, you know, uh, through a person, in this case, Nehemiah, uh, and uh, what he'll do, his, um, his physical, spiritual battles that they'll have. And so typically, you know, if you've been around church for very long, you've probably gone through at least a, a study of at least part of the book of Nehemiah. It is pretty common. It is a great book for encouragement, especially if a you know, uh, uh, you know, there's a spiritual emphasis time, maybe if you've been in part of a church and it talks about Nehemiah and all that he is, uh, the Lord had used him, you know, with all the battles that go along with it. So um, it is a great book for all of that. And chronologically, uh, Nehemiah is the last book of, uh, and the final historical book of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, you know, it's between Malachi, even though Malachi is the last New Testament book uh, in our Bible, uh, really Nehemiah could probably go there as well. So Malachi and Nehemiah were contemporaries. Uh, you probably chronologically could put Nehemiah as the last uh, written thing, uh, written word of God, I should say, not thing, in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. And so um, uh, that's kind of where we find ourselves. I'll, I'll back up to our, our charts here so that you can see them. Uh, again, um, we, we can see a little bit where the temple was destroyed, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel there, um, and their prophetic ministries. And then there's a break in the top of the timeline. There's the uh, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua going back and laying the foundation and then building the temple and then... Uh, you know, finally uh, Ezra will come into the picture, and so he will uh, emphasize spiritual life there, as we talked about last time. And then Nehemiah is going to come on the scene. It's where we find now. So uh, if you look at our, our, our next uh, chart there, you'll see that um, uh, a little bit better of a gap. You'll see it's about a 12-year gap between Nehemiah and um, and Ezra, the last book of Ezra there. So it kind of gives you a little sense of uh, the first time that Nehemiah comes back. Actually, he'll be back twice. And so that just gives you a little bit of a picture of, you know, of where, um, 
the timing of all of that. And then this final chart here is just giving us a little bit of a, um, a timeline, if you would, of what's going on uh, during this, uh, uh, this time. It just kind of puts some dates in there. You'll see where Esther fits in between Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I'm sorry, between the book in, in the middle of Ezra, even though the book falls in between um, uh, the life of Ezra, you can see kind of where it falls in and then where, it, where it's in place with um, uh, Nehemiah as well. So that just gives you some timeline and some sense there. And, and again, I think um, Malachi, the last few words of, of probably Nehemiah are the probably closing words that we have in the uh, Old Testament as we go through it. And, and again, so, you know, this is the a third official return, if you would, to the land. Uh, again, one before Ezra with Zerubbabel, then Ezra was the second one, and now Nehemiah is going back with a group of people. And so, again, remember when uh, the, they had some issues when they first landed. Uh, Zerubbabel, when Cyrus allowed them to come back, they tried to lay the foundation. There was They laid the foundation. There was some trouble. Uh, took them some years to build the temple. They finally finished that, and then... There was another uh, period of time where then God sent Ezra back because of all the problems spiritually they were having. You know, he gets into town and they're marrying foreigners that aren't believers and, you know, living kind of like the pagans were living, the non, non-believers at that time. And so we left off with Ezra with him kind of um, getting leaders to go back to what they should be doing and how they should be serving the Lord and staying away for those that aren't, aren't believers. And so... Um, what we get to now in verse 1 is of chapter 1 of Nehemiah. says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Kislev. Uh, now again, um, some Bibles spell that a little bit different, but it's, it's, a, it's a month in the Jewish calendar, and it's spelled a little different in a couple different translations, but it's a month of the year. It says, In the 12th, I'm sorry, in the 20th year, as I was in uh, Shushan, or also it's called, referred to as Susa, as we'll see here, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So, uh, here is, we, we find out it's written by, Ez, uh, by Nehemiah, obviously. And then uh, uh, one month, uh, his brother, it seems like his physical brother, although it could be uh, just his Jewish brother, but it, the writing seems to think that it's, it's actually his physical brother. He comes to where Nehemiah is. And so Nehemiah's question is, hey, how's it going in Judah? How's it going in Jerusalem? You know, what's going on there? What's, what's, what's happening in the city? And, and again, remember, um, uh, Susa was pretty far away. It was uh, uh, in the empire here. You can kind of see on the map, it's, uh, it was pretty far over to the, to the right-hand side. If you look on that map there, it, it's, uh, you know, you see Ur and Susa and, you know, where Babylon and Nineveh is. So it's kind of, you know, farther out there, if you would, uh, a little farther out than it was, uh, than than even where they left originally Ezra and Zerubbabel when the first group went back. So it was pretty far out there, pretty far away. And again, he uh, is interested in what's happening with, with his people. 
what's going on in Jerusalem? Why is he so interested? Well, because God's work is always tied with or to, tied to God's people. And I think that's some, something important we need to remember. Um, you know, God's work is, is, is tied with his people. He's doing that work. He's always doing that. And so he realizes, uh, Nehemiah knows, um, you know, that's in Jerusalem. That's in Israel. That's where God said he would meet his people. And so, you know, he's got a concern for that. And he wants to know about the city and how the people are doing. Um, uh, and again, he's got a passion and a concern for all that. H how are things going with them? You know, uh, what's happening? And I'm sure he heard the stories from, from uh, Ezra and, and others that have come back and forth here. And uh, he's concerned. And I guess it's a good question to always ask ourselves, too. You know, what are we concerned about? Um, what do we think about? Um, what are the things on our heart and our concerns? Um, they, you know, all too often we can kind of get wrapped up in our routine and, and things happening within our lives. And, you know, uh, Nehemiah had uh, no less responsibility than any one of us and no less busy. As a matter of fact, he, as we'll see here, he had a lot of responsibility and he had a pretty important position and so not any less busy than than any of us but his heart is thinking about the things of the Lord and when our heart is there and our thoughts are there Lord what are you doing uh, what's going on here as you pray for the church as you pray for you know God's work being done in different parts uh, of, of the world and our city and our state and our county and all those kind of things you know, they just, it just naturally, when that concern will move us to prayer. And, and that's why it's so important to connect to God's heart. Um, and again, that we keep our spiritual focus the way it should be. And uh, always thinking of those things and try to get out of our, our own little world. Our, 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 it's easy to stay in the center of me, you know, where I'm the sun and and all the planets and stars and everything else in the galaxy revolve around me. And, uh, you know, whatever's going on in my life is the, the most important concern for everybody and, of course, myself. And, and uh, you just see the heart of, of Nehemiah, and I like that. He just wants to know what's going on with them. And uh, so his brother says to him in verse 3, And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates are burned with fire. So uh, again, I, you know, um, uh, you can get a little sense from the archaeological digs here. Um, this is a modern picture of, uh, of what Jerusalem was like, or at least the, the, the remnants of what Jerusalem was like after the Babylonians had burned down Jerusalem. Remember, they went there three times. Uh, the third time, they were so sick of the rebellion of the Jews that they literally, Nebuchadnezzar, just burned everything and then even had the walls knocked down, the gates knocked down, the buildings knocked down. I mean, he was just leaving it literally a pile of rubble. And uh, if you go through these archaeological you know, digs, and if you could see that a little bit, um, again, it, you, you see that it, 
there's fire and you can see where the fire was and where things were burnt and so forth and broken down the rubble. And, and so, uh, you know, back to the story is, is they answer him and say, how's it going there? Oh man, it's a mess. It, it's, they're in trouble. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like a place to worship the Lord. I mean, they're kind of in fear all the time. They there, you know, there's no way to defend themselves, uh, you know, from anybody that would want to attack. And we'll see that they were, you know, kind of under the thumb of 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 these guys in the Samaritan and Samaria in that area. Um, they'll actually be called Arabs there at that point. They're kind of under their thumb because they really had no place to defend themselves. Uh, you know, back in those days, you you would have a your capital city would have a a good defense so that you could fall back to that, and, and so people couldn't take advantage of you. Um, and so they don't have any of that. It's still a big mess. Now they have the temple, and and certainly you know they were offering their offerings and their sacrifices, but really that was about it. There probably wasn't a whole lot else going on. Although we'll see that there were some people living in the city, but not very many. Just a you know a handful, if you would. And so uh, he, he just gets the bad news. It's, it's just not really good. And they're always under the thumb of somebody, whoever is stronger, that can oppress them. Now, verse 4, I like Nehemiah's response here. He says, you know, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before, God, before the God of heaven. How does Nehemiah respond to, you know, the news that things aren't going well in Jerusalem in the sense of the city is not rebuilt, the people are still having a a, a lot of problems uh, under a lot of persecution and the thing has never really been rebuilt at all. And so his response is he's heartbroken. It's causing him to, to fast and to pray. Now, again, as I said, you know, if you've ever been through the book of Nehemiah, it, 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 you, you may have this sense of Nehemiah, who he was, because he was uh, a man of action. Uh, he is known for a man of action. And as we'll read through this book, you'll see that. I mean, this guy uh, is not afraid. He is not uh, fearful in that sense. He, he is very uh, brave, and he puts his mind to something and gets it done. He's really a man of action. But we see here that he is a man also of prayer. And great people that God, use, uh, that God uses in, in his economy are also people of great prayer and, and people of great action, uh, also are, are going to be people of great prayer. They're, they're just, they just aren't separated. They're really combined. They go together, as we'll see here. And that's a, a great example of that. And we tend to focus on, uh, on you know, the, 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 the actions that Nehemiah will do, because there are so many of them. We see that, and we see the battles with him being faithful to the Lord, you know, the physical battles, the spiritual battles, and all those things that are going on. But, you know, we, we need to remember, before all that starts, before all that happens, he is a great man of prayer. So he prays before he steps out into action, because they just go together. 
And so we get to look at his prayer because it's recorded here. And let's, let's read it because it's the, really the rest of the chapter. And it says, uh, verse 5, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who you love, who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned, and we have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you, command your servant, which you commanded your servant Moses." Verse 8 says, Remember, I pray, the uh, I pray the word that you command your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper in this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Again, I think it's a great prayer to, to look at and to, to go over because um, it's just a, a, something that we see repeated uh, in Scripture, particularly in the, old, in, the, in the Old Covenant prayers like Daniel's and Ezek, uh, and I'm sorry, and Ezra's prayer that we just are very contemporary with Nehemiah or, or close to it and uh, to see how they prayed as well. Uh, the first thing to know is, you know, what's the address? You know, who the Lord is or who the Lord was to Nehemiah and what he does. You know, it's kind of like Jesus uh, taught his disciples. You know, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but he really didn't pray it. He taught his disciples to pray it, right? When they ask him, how should we pray? And, you know, he opens up with our Father, you know, who art in heaven or who is in heaven. Um, it shows our relationship with him. Um, and again, who we are. Uh, Nehemiah is calling him great and awesome. You, you, you keep your promises. You have mercy. You, you love and, and uh, you know, people that have a heart for you. You know, again, there's this relationship there. Again, you know, some of us... Um, our, our, our fathers aren't around or our parents aren't around, but, you know, how did you act or how did your children act when they came to you or when you came to your dad? You know, um, people get this wrong sense. God wants to be identified as our heavenly father. When we enter in that relationship with him through what Jesus did for us on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, you know, we become his children, and he's our father. And again, um, you know, you might be a very important person. You know, let's say the president of the United States or the governor of California or some 
big CEO of Google or Apple or something like that. You know, when their children call, they take the call. Uh, you know, they're not timid or afraid or wondering or not sure. You know, that, that's your dad. That's your parent. You're, you're calling them and, and you want to talk to them. And again, um, um, there's that, that opening and position and place that you have as, as their child or as your children come to you. You know, you'll stop what you do. If they need something, you, you, they have your attention. And, and, and that's important that we understand that relationship here. And he's asking the father to, you know, respond to his requests. I mean, how, how do we pray? Is it in earnest? Is it in passion? Or is it casual? You know, we can see here that, you know, this was really on Nehemiah's heart. He hears about how bad they have it, even though it's, he's not in the midst of that. You know, he has it actually where he is. He has it very well. But, but he knows, you know, that's where God's heart is and God's moving and that's, where you know, his people are to be gathered. And so you know, he, he sees that it's not the way it should be. And so he's praying in earnest with passion. And again, we don't need to do that for his sake. You know, some people think if you use more King James language when you pray, oh, thou, you know, this, and that ye might, you know, and come up with these certain words and so forth that we, you know, need to do that. Uh, or, or be passionate and be loud and animated. You know, people you might have been around can be that way sometimes when they, when they pray. And, and it's not like we need to work up uh, uh, our Heavenly Father's emotions or something or get His attention and get connected because, you know, we're so emotional about it. You know, we do that for our sake, that passion, that earnestness. Um, we don't do that for His sake to get His attention we do that, you know, because it stirs up something inside of us. And certainly you can hear that in Nehemiah's uh, prayer here. Also, you notice that, you know, he says in verse 6, he, he confesses the sins um, of the nation as if they were his. Now, remember, again, he, he wasn't around. That's two or three or four, however you want to count, a generation of people of Go that were, you know, uh, the last remnants there. And you could even go back even a little bit further than that. Um, uh, a few generations before that, that got them to that point. And yet, he confesses the sins of the nation as if they were his, just like Ezra did when we read it, his prayer a few weeks ago. Or uh, when we'll get to Daniel, he kind of does the same thing when he realizes the 70 years are up and, and, and he... You know, as Jeremiah said, and then he just comes with his prayer. And again, he identifies with it and he's connected to the sin because he's taking responsibility because he realizes that he's not any better than anybody else. And I think, you know, we all need to get to that place of humility um, yes, I didn't commit that sin, and yes, I didn't do that, but I realize within me is the potential to do that and, and anything more. And I think we all need to understand that. Um, you, you know, I, I'm not any better, and I realize if I was in their situation, you know, I might have done the same kind of sins that they did, and, and so, you know, I'm not coming to you based on, well, that was those guys and they did it, but I wasn't a part of it, you know. And so, you know, why should we have to suffer for what, you know, 
happened, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. We, we, you know, it's not me. You know, it's, it's kind of the way our society is, is the blame game. We push it around. Well, you know, I'm like this because my parents are like this, or I was raised in this environment, or I was deprived of this as a child, or, you know, I wasn't given this, or I didn't have those opportunities, or, you know, somebody treated me wrong, a neighbor, or a family member, and all those things. And, and, and those things are bad and tragic, certainly, but you know, people will cling on to those their whole life and they kind of live in this, the reason I'm this way is because of these circumstances or situation or because of this, this person. And they don't want to take any personal responsibility for wh- how they act and what they do and what they are now, even though that event might have happened 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I, you know, and, and you know, people like that, they just... You know, the first thing they'll tell you when, when they see maybe how things aren't good in their life, they'll say, oh, you didn't know what the family I was raising, <laughs> you know, and you, and you kind of think, well, you're 60 now. Uh, that was when you were 8 or 10. Uh, you, you can't live 40 years in the past or 50 years in the past. And, and sadly, people will do that. And, um, but you see, you know, the more mature spiritually a person is, is they they, they put themselves and realize that I'm not any better than anybody else. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm connected. I understand. And um, I'm not any better. And then he, you know, verse 8, he reminds God of his promises. You know, he he says, I know your word says that, you know, judgment would follow if we would do this. And certainly that would happen. But Lord, you also said that if we turn back to you, that you will restore us and you will have mercy and you will redeem us. And and so, you know, he reminds God of the promises. Now, again, does does our Heavenly Father need to be reminded of the promises that He has made in His Word or to us personally or to you know, a group of people or however He might have communicated uh, you know, promises of what He's going to do in our lives or in the church or, or through, through you know, the Bible itself? No, He doesn't need reminding. But certainly, we do. It, it's great to be reminded of the promises that you... Uh, that, that you've been given, that we have in Him. And He's given us a lot of them. And uh, He does that. Remember, Lord, you've done this, and we turning back to you, and that's my heart, is that you will restore and restore us as a people and as a nation. And, uh, you know, and, and again, he, he asks that, these prayers will be answered and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, if you notice at the end of verse um, 11 there. And he says, for I was the king's cupbearer. Um, so he has it in his heart after hearing that the nation, and particularly Jerusalem, was in such a bad shape that because of his position as a cupbearer before the king, which means he had access to Artaxerxes, who was a king of the Persian Empire at that time, you know, he had intimate and close contact with him, and he realizes, you know, um, Lord, I, I have this in my heart, and so grant me when I talk to the king, um, you know, mercy and favor so that we can do this. 
And again, after the prayer, Nehemiah waits to hear. Lord, I know you've put this in my heart, and I know you want to rebuild the city, and I know you said if we come back to you, which which we have and the people have, and I certainly have, that you're going to rebuild uh, that. And uh, he, he knew only the king could order the city to be rebuilt. And so his attitude is like, send me, Lord. Um, send me. Uh, it, it's in my heart. I have a passion. I, when, you, when I was told of what was going on, I, 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 you know, it stirred something in me. Remember, Nehemiah had plenty of excuses for not going. I mean, he wasn't a builder. Uh, you know, he could have said, I'm not a builder. I'm not really qualified to do a building project or lead, lead people to doing stuff and restoring this. You know, I already have an important job. Uh, I already have responsibility, um, you know, before the king. It's very important. I have a lot on my plate. You know, he didn't come up with excuses. He, he thought, you know what, Lord, this, I, I see this, I understand this need, and I, I, I see uh, this is something that you want to do, and I, I, uh, if you want to use me, then use me. I, I think that's a, it's a great heart of the mature Christian who, who sees a need, whether it's in the church, um, you know, uh, happening, and typically it happens in the church body, and, you, you know, you see this need, this isn't going on, or this is being neglected, or it's not really happening, and, you know, the Lord shows you this, and then, um, you know, rather than, you know, uh, come and, you know, say, well, this is what we should do, this is what we need to do, or you need to get this, that, you know, a person sits back and says, okay, Lord, I, I see this need, or I see where we could use some showering up here, and in the church, or this needs to be built or encouraged or done. And Lord, I, I, you've let me know about it. So since I know about it, rather than just tell somebody about it and passing the buck and letting them know, Lord, use me. If you, were, if you want to, uh, and you're showing me this, use me. And I think that's the important thing. When the Lord speaks to you and you see a need and you see something that could be done or needs to be done or, or whatever it might be, you know, the Lord's showing you for a reason. And I would encourage you to do what Nehemiah did. Go to prayer. Go to fasting and, 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 and seek the Lord. Lord, do you want to, to use me in this somehow? And it's not a matter if I'm qualified or I'm available for time or uh, well, I'm, you know, that's kind of beneath me or above me or whatever a person might think. Listen, the Lord will give you what you need when you need it uh, as he calls you into doing the work that he's moving in your heart to do, just as he will do here with Nehemiah. And I like that. He's not coming up with excuses or getting a bunch of people and saying, hey, I'll send a note to Ezra that you need to start building the walls or, you know, let's talk to the high priest and get those guys organized and you guys take care of it. I'm way over here. No, Lord, if you want to use me, use me. And I, I, I like this, this quote, um, um, well, that, that somebody said, you know, he would be leaving the prosperity, plenty, prestige for ruins, rough times, and rigor. And uh, I like that. Are we willing for the Lord, if He calls us to do something, are we willing to, you know, leave all those things for what's ruins, rough, and rigor? 
I, I, I hope that we would be, you know, willing to do that. Uh, certainly, um, Nehemiah was willing to do that. And um, he goes to prayer and he seeks the Lord. And we get to chapter 2. Now, notice verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan. That's four months. So four months have passed since the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So there's four months from the end of Nehemiah's prayer before now he has the opportunity or, the, or it's God's timing or will to ask the king um, to, to, to do this. And uh, remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer. And so as it came to pass in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, I like, and here's another quote I'll, I'll, I'll put up there because I think it's, it's, it's really, you know, a, a good quote. And it says, well, let me get to it here. Sorry. Um, push the wrong button. And it says this. Um, Why was it so important for God to tell uh, the date these things happened? First, to show you, Nehemiah prayed and waited four months with the kind of heart described previously in Nehemiah 1. During those four months, Nehemiah's prayer was likely, Lord, either take this burden from my heart or show me how to be the man to answer this burden. And, you know, I, I, I like that. It's just, um, you know, he, uh, he waited. I have this burden, um, I have this uh, heart, I know you're moving, I see this, and I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm seeking you, and so he allows the Lord to confirm this and or to show him what he was, is to do next, but there was some time involved there, and, and, and it's important to do that. I think that that's important. Lord, it's your time in all this as well. I see the need, okay, I'm, I'm willing, but I want it to be in your timing as well. And um, again, I think that's one of the reasons the Lord dates these things. Now, there was another also very important reason that he dates this, and that's because of what Daniel um, uh, tells us in Daniel 9.25. And it says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth uh, of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. So uh, what we have here is a prophecy from Daniel as well. So we know, and again, because we were just going through this in Luke on Sunday morning just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the triumphal entry when Jesus actually was recognized as the Messiah. There is actually time here. Daniel dates from the time of the uh, rebuild, the commandment going forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It talks about that until the time of the Messiah being cut off, the prince, there is actually a a date set there. And if you were to put those dates together, and I'm not going to go through all that, you'll see that it works out 
um, by many calculations to being the very date that Jesus, I think it's April 6th, uh, 32 AD, uh, when he came in that triumphal entry. So again, the Lord is making sure those are recorded so that what has said in his word as far as dates and times and how things are going to work out go exactly and according to plan. And, and so I think we see a, a couple of important things with Nehemiah putting down these dates. Not only it shows his patience and his prayer and his concern as, and, and, and putting into, Lord, you're willing, leading and directing me, as well as fulfilling prophecy that, that Daniel had wrote, because now we know the date of this when Artaxerxes is going to give this command. All right, so it says here, on the 20th year of Artaxerxes, it goes on in verse 1 of chapter 2, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And notice this, so I became dreadfully afraid. Now, don't miss this. Um, Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and again, he would have access to the king unlike almost anybody else. Uh, uh, part of his job certainly was to taste the food and wine and the drinks and whatever he was drinking, whatever he was eating, to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And that was part of the job. It was a very trusted place because if you had a, a, a person that you couldn't trust in that position, then all that was for naught, right? They could bypass him and you know be bought off and the king could be uh, assassinated pretty quickly. And so again, uh, this was uh, something that they had somebody that was personal and next to them and with them and around them a lot. So again, had great access. And when he... At this particular time, when the time had come for him to, to, to serve the king something, um, you know, Nehemiah was doing his job. But you notice that he wasn't sad and he wasn't crying or moaning as he gave the king his cup. Because as we can see here, there's just no way he would have done that. Because even his countenance, though, again, it wasn't something that was thought of because he was dreadfully afraid that the king noticed that he was that he even had a sad face i mean he was kind of freaking out right because you didn't go before the the king's presence particularly as persian kings like these guys that ruled you know again just this huge empire you just didn't go before him unless you were you, you know in in a, a smiley self there wasn't any of this moping or crying or you know lord why are you taking so long to answer this prayer kind of thing and okay here you know guards do you say your it wasn't like that at all we need to understand that he was doing his job he was doing what he was supposed to do he wasn't putting on the eeyore face right oh i don't know you know he wasn't doing any of that but the Lord allowed to the king to notice that he wasn't exactly himself. And that just goes to show you how long he served him for, probably, and how well that they knew each other. And of course, uh, you can see the Lord's hand working in all this because he is now giving Nehemiah this open door to ask him after waiting those months. And though he was panicked, certainly, because the king could have said, Listen, if you're going to have an attitude in my presence, off with your head, I can get somebody else. That, that wasn't it. 
And again, he asked him, and notice there was a little something different about him, and obviously he wasn't sick. So Nehemiah now has the king's attention on him, and he's freaking out a little bit. He's a little bit afraid. And I know I'm not supposed to do this in front of the king, and I know that I could be executed for this. So again, he and this and again, Nehemiah wasn't some wimp. Don't get this idea. I mean, this guy is tough as nails, as we'll see here, in, as we read through you know the story of what the Lord used him here. But you know, there was some fear because of the power and the king, and and you know, kind of think of. Um, Alice in Wonderland, the Queen of Hearts, you know, off with his head, right? She would say that at the drop of a hat, literally, right? And you have that kind of sense here, doing the same thing here. And he notices him, and I, Nehemiah sees this as the open door, verse 3, and I said to the king, may the king live forever. What else are you going to say to a guy like that, right? He said, why should my face not be sad when the city the place of my father's tombs lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, well, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. <laughs> so, I don't know, picture this. this is, I kind of go over it in my own mind, and I don't know if this helps you at all, but he's like, okay, okay, my head's still attached. He knows something's going on. okay. And so, okay, yes, king, I'm respecting you. So he, you know, he gives his respect to the king. You live forever. That was just a, a very common thing to say. It was a sign of respect. So it's not like he's uh, trying to butter him up or necessarily, um, uh, you know, um, the word escapes my mind um, when you're trying to butter somebody up. And I don't know why it's going. I can't get it right now. But, you know, he wasn't, oh, flattering. He wasn't trying to flatter him to get his way. Um, uh, what, you know, what he was doing was he was concerned. And so he poured his heart out. You know, the city where my forefathers, now obviously he'd probably been there for a number of generations, uh, and Nehemiah had never been there, okay? But it's a wreck. It's a mess, king. And uh, it's, it's, not in, it's not doing very well. It's a mess, and the, so the king asked him, I mean, this is the king of the Persian Empire. What do you want? And so, okay, Lord, I see you working. I, I've been praying and fasting for these four months, and I've been seeking you. Do you want to use me? I'm doing, going about my job and my business. But, you know, you, you break into this, uh, you know, my job, if you will, when I'm doing my job and serving the king, and he notices me, and so gives me an opportunity to speak, and then he asks me what I want. And so he asks this millisecond prayer. I love that. Because sometimes, you know, we think, okay, uh, you know, it's, uh, I want to pray, and so I have to, you know, get in a certain position, I have to bow my head, I have to hold my hands, I have to close my eyes, and not that any of those things are bad or wrong, and they certainly have their place, and they, they're, they're, they're good for a reason, and all those things are good for a number of reasons. You know, you close your eyes, it keeps your focus on, on your prayer instead of looking around and being distracted. You know, you bow your head out of reverence, you may, you know, move to another position kind of out of humility or something like that. Um, but, um, you know, I understand all those things, but there's times when, 
you know, you're literally doing something and you're going from one sentence to the next sentence and you offer up this prayer and it's okay to do. It's kind of like, you know, saying, oh Lord, help me. <laughs> you know, I see a door opening, help me to get through this. This is a big thing and uh, it was, I believe it was unexpected, but he realizes, hey, I've been praying for this. I've been seeking you on this. I've been serious about this. And so you're opening the door, but this is a huge thing. I understand that. I see this door open. Now help me to get through it. I think that's kind of what his prayer was. And I think that's a great thing. You know, you pray, should I be sharing my faith with this person? And can you open a door so I can talk to them, Lord? Or I want to help this person or I want to do this or whatever it might be the Lord's putting on her heart. And so, Lord, you know, I have this burden to do this or whatever it might be or the desire. And so, you know, you're praying. And then when the Lord, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you see this opportunity. Okay, Lord, if this is it, you know, show me, you know, as it maybe moves pretty quickly right then, like it's happening here with Nehemiah. And, and um, I like that. So he offers up this millisecond prayer. Lord, I see the door opening. Help me to get it through. And then what do you want? Well, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So again, doesn't seem like much uh, and the way of saying things there, but it, it's pretty important. And he's before, again, the ruler of arguably the greatest and most powerful empire in the world at that time. Okay, so you understand that. But he knows the Lord's working, so he asks with boldness. And then the king, verse 6, said to him, with the queen also sitting beside him, Well, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? I like that because the king and queen obviously liked Nehemiah and they wanted him back. They, they understood you know, his heart to go do this. I think they understood this, but they, they wanted him to be there. So, I mean, you could see how the Lord had been working in that relationship with, with the king and queen and with Nehemiah. And so it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. Furthermore, I said to the king... So, okay, agreed upon this time. Okay, I'll be gone this many years. And okay, that sounds good. And then verse seven, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Listen, king, I want to go back. I want to rebuild my city. And I like that the queen was sitting next to the king. And I, I don't know, I picture this in my mind, and maybe it doesn't, but he says, you know, uh, the, the, you know my, more my ancestors are from. It's just a mess. I want to go back there and rebuild it and, and, and do great things back there. And so I, you know, I, I kind of picture the queen, you know, maybe giving her husband the elbow a little bit. Come on, help Nehemiah out, you know. And again, maybe because of Esther and Mordecai, as we'll talk about them, because, you know, they were involved in the 
in the, you know, uh, his dad's empire. That was his, uh, I guess, his stepmom, really. Um, and so, you know, they, they had some influence there. And so maybe, you know, she's giving him one of those little elbow. And so, you know, the king says, okay, how long are you going to be gone? Okay, great. But he doesn't stop there. You know, I, I, not only do I want to go, but I would like letters from you that say that you're allowing this. Because I think Nehemiah knew the problem that Ezra had and the problem that Zerubbabel had were these governors that were over there that's supposed to be for the Persian, you know, uh, beyond the river. Remember, they're on the other side of the Euphrates, and that's what they called, you know, what today would be Syria and Lebanon and... and um, and Israel, and even down into Egypt, they call that beyond the river. You know, those governors were causing problems. So, I, you know, King, could you give me this, the, the, the approval that you're allowing this? And not only that, would you give me a letter that would provide the building materials that I need for this? And then as an added bonus, we'll see here, uh, you know, next time, that he will give him an armed escort as well. So he's going to give him some soldiers on horseback and some uh, cavalry uh, troops, not only cavalry troops, but uh, also foot soldiers as well uh, to go with him. And, uh, you know, again, when God is moving, let's not sell him short or think he will only do a little for us. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, we think, oh, well, I'll just ask for a little bit or I'll ask just to do this or I'll just get this and... You know, don't be afraid to ask our Heavenly Father for great things. Um, you know, and, and don't think that, you know, we have to be good or lovable, you know, this week. Or, you know, I've been reading my Bible every day and I've been praying and I've been good. And so, you know, I can now I can ask Him for certain things or something like this that we have to be, you know, in some kind of state to do that. You know, He's our Heavenly Father and He loves us. And why not ask Him for great things? You want to do great things in Him. Now, again, I, I just don't think the Lord wants to give too many of us the winning lottery tickets, okay? I mean, because having $300 million given to most of us would, would ruin us. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm not talking about stuff like that. Although, you know, He might. You know, if, you know, if your heart is to, Lord, if you want to bless me, I, I want to give it all away to missions or this or build this church here or whatever, you know? I mean, again, um, uh, don't, be, don't be afraid to come boldly before the, the throne of grace. Uh, he, he wants to do great and wonderful things. And there are some great people of faith in Scripture that just, you know, Lord, I, I, I want to do great things for you, and they don't uh, mind just asking the Lord to do all that. Now, he may choose to do it. He may choose to do it all, a little bit less or twice as much. We don't know. But I think it's always important that we remember he, he wants to do great things in and through us, and he wants to use us, his people, because that's what he does. He, he's not dispatching you know, legions of angels to do all this work on earth and to take care of this and do this or, or, or any other kind of created being or angelic type. You know, he uses people. He uses uh, believers, uh, the body of Christ to be his hands and ears and feet and, and legs and back and eyes and, and, and mouth and, and, and all of that. And, and wallets. I mean, he 
he uses his people. And so, uh, again, why not desire to be used by him and be one of those people that say, Lord, listen, I, want, I know you want to do great things in this world, and I want to be on that bus. I, I want to be that person. I want to be used. And so use me and, and, and do great things and ask him, Lord, you know, do great things. You're a great and awesome God. And, and it's all yours anyway. And so I, I just want to be that person that you use here to accomplish whatever you have fit for me to accomplish and to do. And certainly that was the heart of Nehemiah. And, and what a great encouragement it was to be used. And again, it took four months. That seems like maybe a long time for some people. And other times the Lord, it's taken a number of years. Other time it's answered Five minutes after the prayer, sometimes it's answered before it's finished pray. You know, there's all prayer. There's all sorts of, you know, uh, timelines in, in, in scriptures that we have examples of. But nonetheless, the passion was still there. At the right time, the Lord opened the door and he wasn't afraid to, to step through. He was fearful, but he was confident in the Lord and asked the Lord for that confidence. And, and then, you know, Lord... I want to have permission and I want to have the materials. And, and, and then, you know, he gets the arm escort and all the other things that we'll see that he'll need that he didn't even know he'll need until he got there. Um, it'll be given to him. And that's just what our Heavenly Father does. And I think this book of Nehemiah is a great and wonderful example of this. And so we'll finish here uh, tonight and pick it up in verse 9 uh, next time. And um, verse 9 is when he actually gets to Jerusalem. And so um, we'll, we'll, we'll leave him in, in Susa here, and then we'll pick him up in Jerusalem next time. So let's pray. Father, again, we do thank you for your word and for all that you uh, are, are going to do and show us through the book of Nehemiah. And it is a great and wonderful book. It is a great encouragement. It's a book of great encouragement, even through difficult times. And Lord, I know we'll see so much, and uh, there's already so much, Lord, that can um, speak to our hearts today and has. And we ask that you would just continue to move through our midst and continue to use us. And Lord, if there are things that we see that needs and things that need to be done or things that are lacking or things that are need to be you know, changed around or whatever it might be, Lord, you're showing it to us for a reason. And help us not to be those people that want to pass the buck and, okay, I'll let somebody know, but actually the ones that say, okay, Lord, you showed it to me, and if you want me to be a part of this or do this or go there or give that or be whatever, uh, Father, help us to, to have that heart to, you know, maybe, Lord, you want to use me as the solution or to bridge the gap or to be a part of that. And so, Lord, um, when we have that servant's heart, it's amazing what you'll do in and through our lives, Lord. And help us to be those people. Help us to be great people of action that uh, follows uh, great prayer and great desire to be in the center of your will. And you will do great and wonderful things in our lives. So bless these things to our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name.